from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. One of the things that I may share with some of these far-right figures is a skepticism toward certain forms of um, uh, belief in moderation. And I think that's a very loose alliance. Valuing compromise for its own sake can lead to a situation in which a person can put, someone, someone as brilliant of a politician as Obama can put forth what looks like an absolutely perfect compromise and have it fail. You know, it succeeded in the sense of legislation, but it failed in the sense that it isn't taken to be a compromise. It's not a point of unity among the right and the left. I'm Sarah Fenske. Rachel Greenwald-Smith wants to talk about compromise, the compromises we make in politics, and why those are often perceived as a good thing, the compromises we make in art. That's the focus of her provocative new book of essays. It's called On Compromise, Art, Politics, and the Fate of an American Ideal. Rachel Greenwald-Smith is an associate professor of English at St. Louis University, and she joins us today. Rachel, welcome. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So you posit that compromise really is an American ideal and that a willingness to compromise is seen as a desirable trait. But you take issue with that. Why? Well, you know, I think um, the most important thing to say from the start is that the book is a critique of compromise. I do um, question whether or not we should value compromise as much as we do, but it's not a critique of all forms of compromise. So very early in the book, I make a distinction between compromise as a means and compromise as an end. And I recognize that compromise is often necessary as a means, especially when we're trying to get along together in groups. Um, We have to negotiate with one another. We have to be able to come to decisions even when we disagree. But what I take issue with is compromise understood as an end. And by that, I mean when we say that we respect people who compromise or when we value compromises for their own sake or when we think that a compromise is preferable to an assertion of something that might be um, stronger or more extreme in certain circumstances. And I don't think we should make that automatic judgment. I think that there are times when things that aren't compromises are actually preferable to things that are. So give us an example. What's something where there's no compromise and that's a good thing? Well, I mean, my my background is as an art critic and as a literary critic. And so I first saw this in works of literature. Um, if you look at what ha- what liter- what was happening in literature in the 20th century and where some of our greatest works of literature came from, they came from really extreme experiments. So I'm thinking about some of the great avant-gardist works. I'm thinking about modernist works, like um, works by people like Virginia Woolf, um, like Richard Wright, like um, you know James Joyce. These are all artists who um, took on projects that were absolutely uncompromising, that attempted to challenge us in ways um, that um, we had never been challenged before. And what I saw around me in the contemporary art environment when I started working on this book was that increasingly writers who I was in conversation with um, didn't believe that such experiments were possible anymore. And part of the reason they didn't believe that such experiments were possible anymore had to do with the way that the literary market worked, had to do with the way that publishing worked. And so I sort of set out on a journey when I was writing this book to understand what the 
political, economic, and social circumstances were that made it such that writers weren't capable of thinking about such projects as possible anymore. And that took me beyond the realm of art and into a whole lot of other domains that frankly surprised me as I was going along. And frankly, I'm a little surprised to hear that's where this began because the book starts, you know, if you pick it up and, and start reading, you're reading about the politics first. And then we learn to maybe understand some of what we're thinking about politics through the lens of art. You started looking at this through the lens of the art. That's right. I mean, I am a scholar, and that's and I had already written a book of scholarship, and I thought I was writing a second book of scholarship. Um, but once the examples I started, you know, once I started focusing on compromise, I started seeing these examples all over the place, and that took me outside of my comfort zone as a scholar, and it made it necessary to think about publishing a book that was absolutely not a not a work of scholarship. I mean, this book is a work of very, I think, I hope, accessible essays that are personally grounded, that are taking on topics that are, um, I think, of urgent importance to a lot of us. So I did learn a lot about art reading this book. You introduced me to some figures that I wasn't familiar with. You helped me understand ones that I was familiar with in in much different ways. Um, But throughout the book, I would say the one through line that I kept coming back to is this is really a critique of liberalism. And when you say liberalism, you don't mean it in the sense that a Fox News viewer might say liberalism. So let's start to make sure we're all on the same page here. When you're critiquing liberalism, what are you critiquing? I'm critiquing the sort of foundational American value that tells us that we should strive to be free, autonomous people. Um, And freedom, obviously, is a complicated topic. Um, Many political theorists have taken it on. I believe in freedom in many ways. But the ways in which our valuing of freedom um, as a liberal society can turn over into something like sheer individualism is troubling to me. And um, compromises associated to liberalism as a value insofar as liberalism, aside from from valuing liberty, individualism, also tends to value moderation, um, forms of rational discourse, um, forms of sort of um, a compromise for its own sake. Um, And so I sort of, one of the ways that I take on liberalism in the book is by extracting this value compromise and seeing what I can do with it to understand liberalism as a broader value. So this ends up putting you in some strange company. It's fair to say from reading this book that your politics are progressive, left-leaning politics. And yet this critique of liberalism, you have a lot in common with Senator Josh Hawley. And I'm glad there's plexiglass between us because I'm afraid you'd otherwise be tempted to, to love at me based on everything I've read about your, your thoughts on politics. Do you see that? Well, I mean, I do end up engaging with some figures from the right in the book, I think very critically. Um, but one of the things that I may share with some of these far right figures is a skepticism toward certain forms of um, uh, belief in moderation. So I think that, I, and, I, and I think that's a very loose alliance. So one of the figures I, I talk about in the book is the Nazi political theorist Carl Schmitt. And I have to, I just have to cut in here. You know, we're sort of reading, you're quoting him, and we're saying, wow, you know, he's making some good points. And then you come right out and say, this guy's a Nazi. Yeah. And and I mean, you know, I'm not the first leftist to use Carl Schmitt. Um, there are many, many left political theorists. Uh, Chantal Mouffe, who I use a lot in the book, um, is also, I think, considers herself a Schmittian. Um, he has, his major insight is to see politics as a confrontation between friends and enemies. And that's the concept of his that I pick up. But one of the things that the first person form allows me to do in this book of essays is to really think about what it means to draw a concept like that from a figure like Carl Schmitt. I mean, it's very, very common among political theorists 
to do so and just sort of take off and use his critique of liberalism to leftist purposes. And I dwell on the problems and the ambivalences that I have to face when um, allying myself with him, even temporarily. And I do ultimately depart from him as well. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, You know, as the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, I take it very seriously to entertain thoughts from somebody who had his positions. And yet I do think this distinction between friends and enemies is very useful in a moment when the left, I think, is sometimes unwilling to really consider a split between its own positions and the positions of the right, partly because of a sort of, I think, liberal belief in in negotiation and discourse, which I think is noble, but may not be working in our current circumstances. So say we can find that common ground, um, that you can look at somebody whose politics you don't share and say, hey, we can agree that liberalism uh, uh, falls short, that it leaves us wanting in some major ways. Is there a way to move forward in that that doesn't become the same kind of muddled compromise that you're really condemning here? That's a really good question. I mean, I guess the the way to answer that question would be to think about my relationship with someone like Schmidt, which is obviously easier because he's a historical figure who I don't need to look across the plexiglass at. Um, but um, in 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 the case of Schmidt, what I end up saying is like, look, we can we can agree on this point, this definition of the political as having. Um, having to do with the confrontation between friends and enemies. But we don't need to try to find common ground between our two beliefs about something like race or ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Um, And I make it very clear in the book that on that level, we are absolutely enemies. Um, He believes in or he believed in uh, racist um, political philosophy and ultimately in the extermination of people like me. Um, I cannot join him in that belief. So I think part of what I'm trying to say here is that rather than valuing compromise as sort of a muddy um, sort of general answer, and I think often when it's invoked, it's not invoked clearly, to be able to be clear about where our, where our agreements and disagreements are um, and try to find points of alliance perhaps, but not try to find ways that we can compromise our own senses of justice in order to achieve some small gain that might ultimately fade over time. We're talking today to Rachel Greenwald-Smith. She's a professor at St. Louis University. Her book is On Compromise, Art, Politics, and the Fate of an an American Ideal. This book really challenged me. I feel like I learned so much from it. I also enjoyed it. Uh, And there's ways that I then wanted to take issue with it. So you have a a chapter called The Missouri Compromise, which is very fitting. You write about being in St. Louis. You quote a writer saying, liberalism is a system which rests on compromise. Hence, all of its solutions are in the end temporary, occasionally never decisive. I found myself thinking about the Missouri Compromise, which was a a bad thing, a very bad thing. And yet the history of Missouri suggests that this was temporary. This got us to where we needed to go. And so, you know, this this idea of the arc of the moral universe is long. It bends towards justice. This that this idea that Obama believed, incremental change that will ultimately get us to where we need to go. Can't compromise be a way of sort of easing in to your ultimate goal, getting people to feel comfortable with them because it's a way of slowly advancing over time. I'm thinking about something like same-sex marriage. Sure, there are definitely examples in which that's true. I don't know that I think that's true about the Missouri Compromise because um, what happened with the Missouri Compromise is that Missouri ended up being admitted to the Union as a slave state. The compromise was imagined as staving off civil war, which it did not do, it just delayed it. And one of the things I'm interested in in the chapter, the Missouri Compromise, 
compromise is in the ways in which um, racial violence persisted in Missouri and in St. Louis in particular over time, um, in part because St. Louis um, and Missouri did not have to reckon with the same kind of racial, um, direct racial uh, laws and legislations as, say, the Jim Crow states did. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was a sort of quiet building of racist policy in the form of housing policy and other forms of direct structural injustice that has led us to a situation in which um, St. Louis, you know, by all counts, is a place where African Americans are free. And yet, if you look at the Del Mar Divide, we have one of the most um, dramatic um, and clearly structural forms of racial violence happening in our city as anywhere in the Union. So I, 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 one of the arguments that I'm making in that chapter is just to say that what looks like incrementalism or what looks like compromise can actually be a way of burying violence, making it less overt, but also then not dealing with it directly and allowing it to persist. Do you see the incrementalism of the Obama era as doing that? I mean, in many respects, yes. I I think the gay marriage example is an important exception. Um, And thank you for introducing that. That's really useful. In the Obama case, one of the things that I have a a chapter in the book called Compromiser in Chief that's about Obama and um, draws from a quote um, that Obama from an early interview with Obama in 2004, in which he compares a good piece of legislation, which he calls a good compromise to a good sentence or a good song. And he says, everyone can recognize it. Um, And I'm interested in that comment because it's offering up compromise and legislation as something analogous to art, something that we can look at and see as beautiful. And I think he believed that. But one of the things that that led him to do is to imagine he could craft these beautiful compromises in advance, which when you stop and think about it is actually a remarkable thing. Um, Compromises are something that we usually come to by being in arguments with people (laughs) and having to resolve them. Um, And if you look at a piece of legislation like the Affordable Care Act, which did succeed in providing health insurance to many people, um, it was a policy offered up as a a compromise in advance. Um, The basic sort of premises of the Affordable Care Act were first dreamed up by the Heritage Foundation, which is a right-wing think tank. It was instantiated by Mitt Romney, who was a Republican governor. um, And Obama pitched this to the American people as a compromise. The result was that it passed on purely partisan grounds and has been heavily contested by the right. Um, you know, a sidebar to this, of course, is that this is one of the reasons why um, the right hasn't come up with a good alternative to the ACA is because it's their, policy. Was their policy. It was their yeah. policy. But it's a really good example of how um, valuing compromise for its own sake can lead to a situation in which a person can put someone someone as brilliant of a politician as Obama can put forth what looks like an absolutely perfect compromise and have it fail in the sense that you know, it succeeded in the sense of legislation, but it failed in the sense that it is that it is not taken to be a compromise. It's not a point of unity among the right and the left. So part of what I loved about this book is in your chapter about the compromiser in chief, you're writing about Obama, you're talking about how inelegant this kind of legislation is. You're also talking about the tiny dancer scene from Almost Famous. You're weaving art into politics in ways that I suspect our conversation has not fully captured mm-hmm. today. I've been so mired in the 
politics. Um, one of the things you did for this book that was so interesting is you visited the archives preserving the history of the Riot Girls. That sounds amazing. It was so fun. I'm, you know, what's interesting is that as a scholar, my work is on contemporary literature, so I very rarely do archival work. I have a lot of colleagues in the English department at St. Louis University who are, you know, pouring through manuscripts that are medievalists and early modernists and are reading this stuff all the time. I rarely get to go into archival spaces, but um, I couldn't, I couldn't um, turn down the opportunity to go and look at this archive that exists at NYU of um, zines and materials that belong to, um, you know, people involved in the Riot Girl movement, which was a very important feminist punk movement in the 1990s, and the work of Kathleen Hanna in particular, who is the lead singer of the band Bikini Kill and sort of a, the movement's ostensible leader. Um, and one of the things that was amazing about it is that I was pairing this kind of scholarly activity of sitting here with manila envelopes and gloves and all of this with um, artifacts, many of which I had from my youth. You know, I had these zines sort of crumpled under my bed and magazines that I had been tearing pages out of. Um, so it was a really surreal experience in that sense, seeing my own cultural background as, as literary history. Yeah, it seemed so interesting. And, and you could tell what a dream come true this was for you to get to dig into this archive. You do end up writing um, about your own childhood in Portland and how that fits into this and, and frankly, how it fits into the fact that you do have this critique of liberalism. This comes out of the fact that you were raised in a, a very open way. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, and I don't want to I, I, I play with that history in the book. Um, I do want to say I had a wonderful childhood, um, and growing up in Portland was wonderful. Um, and my parents were, you know, 60s um, social movement people who um, were part of a kind of general culture in Portland at the time that really wanted to see children have as much choice as possible. Um, and at school, I found that what that turned into was that someone like me, who really thrived on structure and organization, felt very lost at times. Um, so I write about you know, having to do these grammar exercises where the teacher would put up a sentence and just ask us what we should do with it to fix it without giving us any information. So people would make the sentence worse and worse and worse, and I would get increasingly frustrated. Um, so you wanted the structure of a good <laughs> sentence. <laughs> I did. I, I, I wanted to diagram sentences. I wanted to see the structure. I wanted to see the form. Um, and so uh, that does, I do use that to talk about some of the problems with freedom, that there are times when simply giving individuals free reign isn't the very best thing you can do for them. And how many of us, I think, strive for structure um, and desire forms of constraint, even as we want ways to express ourselves. So I did find myself then wondering about your career. You write about being in this punk band and, you know, you really took that Riot Girl thing um, in your life. And then you end up a professor. Was that a compromise? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, well, you know... I don't know that it was a compromise exactly. I wanted to be a professor first, and then I joined the band because a dear friend of mine asked me to, um, and I wanted to hang out with her, so I decided to, <laughs> to do it. That's a, that's it a really great reason story. to join a band, honestly. <laughs> Maybe the best reason to join yeah. a band. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't think being a professor was a compromise in terms of leaving the band to do it. And certainly being a professor... Uh, these days is not an easy thing to do. Um, it's sort of like deciding to become a major league athlete or something like that. There just aren't that many tenure track no. jobs. So a person has to, you know, really commit. So that didn't feel like a compromise. I will say that being a professor 
and especially now, I'm also the director of graduate studies for our English department at um, St. Louis University. Um, being an administrator, especially, puts me in the scene of compromises a lot. Mm. Um, you know, I need to negotiate my own relationship to institutions. That was true simply in order to get tenure. It's definitely true trying to negotiate funding and things like that for graduate students. Um, and that really, I think, helped me write the book um, because I did approach the book at first when I was when I started out looking most at works of art, you know, looking at the history of punk and the avant-garde, it's quite easy to just say, what's with all these compromises? We need uncompromising attitudes. We need uncompromising art. And I still believe that on the level of art. Being in the scene of, of institutional negotiation makes things much more complicated. And I think that really helped me with the political valences of the book um, be much more specific about what I wanted to target in my critique of compromise um, and th I think the last thing to say um, before we run out of time about that is also that um, it made it really important to me to make a distinction that I hope I make clearly in the book between the sort of structures and forces that lead us to value compromise and that, that often put forward compromise as a value in our lives and individuals who get forced into situations in which they must make compromises. Mm -hmm. um, I very much target my critique at the former and not the latter. I I, I, one of the reasons I put myself in the book so much is to demonstrate the sort of bad feelings and ambivalent relationships that most of us end up having in so many aspects of our lives as we have to make compromises because the world demands that of us. Mm -hmm. um, and if there's hope in the book, it's for a world that maybe doesn't demand such awful compromises from us that gives us more opportunities for justice, that gives us more resources so that we can more easily um, make compromises that don't feel so dire. Well, Rachel Greenwald-Smith, um, you just stated that so well. That's actually the perfect note to end on. I just have to ask one last very quick question because we are almost out of time. This book got such a great write-up in The New Yorker. That must have just felt like a dream come true. Oh, it absolutely was, yes. Well, Rachel Greenwald-Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. And that book we've been talking about, that's On Compromise, Art, Politics, and the Fate of an American Ideal. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske, with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.